A long, unusual, and brittle election cycle comes to an end today, and American voters will be thinking a lot about our political system. Is it so broken that we need radical transformation, or should we make incremental changes to make a more perfect union? I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call, and while the people decide, we're sharing impressions about a most unique campaign year. Joining me via Skype are Roll Call columnist Patricia Murphy in Atlanta and Matt Lewis in New York. Patricia, you've noted how campaigns, at least conventional political campaigns, may not matter as much as they used to. Hillary Clinton has all the apparatus, Donald Trump almost none, but it's still a close race, and he's made us rethink messaging and how to stoke voter engagement, right? He has. And I think, you know, two things that Donald Trump has going for him uniquely in a way that perhaps no other candidate will have again are just his gigantic celebrity and his uh, his media following. On, on Twitter alone, he's got 13 million followers. That's more than the circulation of The New York Times and The Washington Post and The Wall Street Journal combined. So he has a unique ability, I think, because of his celebrity to dispense with what typical campaigns usually do. But at the same time, he has made some other choices, even just in terms of just staffing, field offices, um, raising money. He has he has uh, refused to follow convention on every level. And in some cases, that's really worked for him. And so I think he has um, one thing we can certainly thank Donald Trump for in the future is that he has shaken up and dispensed with the status quo in campaign operations, which have which have become relatively static in some ways. Um, but we'll find out on election night if, if you really don't need a campaign at all, if all you have to do is be a celebrity with, uh, you know, a quick, uh, a quick Twitter finger to win this thing. Um, it's to me, it's just astounding that he's gotten this far um, with a, kind of a shell of a campaign operation. He's raised about half as much money as Hillary Clinton. He's spent just a tiny fraction of what she has spent. Um, you know, and we're looking at a situation where he's within you know, two or three points of her one way or another. So to me, his his ability to dispense with traditional campaigning and and do what he's done is is really remarkable. And we'll know, we don't know yet, but we'll know soon if, if that's something that you can really do and win anyway. He really has broken so many conventional political norms from uh, refusing to release his tax returns to not really learning the issues. Uh, Matt, it, it kind of seems that the nation has sort of accepted that behavior, normalized it, or, or maybe become numb to his behavior? Yes, I think that there are many, many factors that led to the rise of Donald Trump. If someone could write a book, and in fact I did <laughs> write a book that talked about many of the factors, one of them speaks to what you're getting at. And I think that that Look, we live in a world now where we have reality TV, and I think that Donald Trump is the kind of candidate you get in a media environment where you have reality TV. I also think that, you know, ironically, he's the Republican nominee, and Republican Party was ostensibly the party of family values. But I think that Trump's rise is also indicative of a coarsening society. And uh, I think it says something about our values as well. So, you know, I think the Trump phenomenon is in some in some ways um, a mirror that that tells us about about who we are, not just about Donald Trump. I guess the, the point has been made that 
Hillary Clinton hasn't also made a, a truly compelling case for why she should be president, uh, maybe partly because her campaign persona has been crimped by decades of Republican attacks. Uh, to both of you, what are you expecting to hear from her if she wins? I'll take that first. I think that she will be instructed to by her campaign to make it not about her and to make it about the voters and to to cast this as a gigantic victory for a broad swath of people. If she does that, it will be ironic because I think this campaign has largely been about Hillary Clinton. Her own campaign, her slogan is, I'm with her. And Donald Trump, one of the very best lines he ever had in this campaign was, I'm with you. And so I think if she does turn her focus more to the voters instead of herself, it will be the right direction and a direction I think she should have. I think also the irony if she does turn it to the voters and say, you're the one who you're the ones who put me here. I think it would be a mistake for the Democrats to cast this as a gigantic endorsement of their vision. And I think that Hillary Clinton has a lot more bridge building to do before Democrats and progressives can run with this. Yeah, I, look, I think that 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 she will be pulled in two different directions. There will there is a, a temptation to dance in the end zone and to to celebrate and you know I think partisans and, and ideologues want to do that. They will assume they have a mandate um, and they will want to to sort of ram through liberal legislation. There's the other uh, the other option which is to be conciliatory and to be a uniter. I hope she goes with the latter option. I think the country right now could really use that. And I think in the long run, it's in her best interest. But this is a tension. And uh, I don't know. We've seen, actually, during the course of the campaign, she has flirted with both both tendencies. So I don't think it's clear which side she would come down on. I think that if you know, we could look to what she did after she won her Senate seat in New York. If she were to follow that path, I think it would be a really successful one after she won her Senate seat in New York. She took her time deciding what would be her platform and her direction. And I think she went about really courting relationships in the Senate. I think she was very careful not to get out too far ahead of the voters. And she spent a lot of time going back to the voters she had talked to to find out, you know, it was sort of her famous uh, listening tour again. She kept a very low profile in the Senate and I think took her time to decide what she would do. And I think it was much appreciated um, and made her a, a really popular figure in the Senate among senators, Democrats and Republicans alike. Matt, you wrote uh, how for much of this campaign, it felt like um, Secretary Clinton was coasting. In reality, she may not have had a big lead, but Trump's inability to run a disciplined campaign kind of created that impression. But recently, with uh, email disclosures and FBI in the news, uh, she's been on the defensive for a sustained period. That's right. I sort of compare it to a football game. We've all seen football games where it looks, it sort of feels like the Cowboys are winning the whole game. But you look up at the scoreboard and they're only up by maybe a touchdown. So that's kind of what this race has been like. We've almost the entire campaign had the sense that Hillary was going to win or that she was winning, but she never put Trump away. She never was able to run up the score or run out the clock. And there have been just a couple of occasions during the course of this campaign where the race was basically tied. Interestingly, 
maybe maybe it's sort of in keeping with with the zeitgeist of 2016, which has been a crazy year. We are ending the campaign at one of those moments where Donald Trump has more or less been on offense and been dis fairly disciplined by Donald Trump's standards for a couple of weeks now. And I, I, I'm still predicting a Hillary Clinton victory, but I think that, that Donald Trump is ending very strong. And I think that that may help Republicans hold the U.S. Senate, basically what we've seen these last couple of weeks. For both of you, what happens to the never-Trump voters? Are, are they going to show their spine one last time on Election Day, or have they sort of been absorbed into a united front against Hillary Clinton? Well, I tell you, my, my sense on this one is that, the, you know, we never Trumpers could hold our meetings in a phone booth. This has never been what I would call a large movement. I think that it's, it's essentially confined to, um, to, to basically the lunch break room at the Weekly Standard. <laughs> so I've never, I don't think this has ever been, been a, a, a broad movement. Um, and so I don't think that there will be much of an electoral impact. I do think that the Never Trump movement will be important going forward. And here, when I, I'm, I'm thinking of people like Eric Erickson at redstate.com, Ben Sass, a U.S. senator from Nebraska, um, and others who are sort of prominent opinion leaders. And I think that, that if Donald Trump loses, the next thing that's going to happen is there'll be a huge fight and deciding what the narrative is. Uh, is the narrative that, that Trumpism has been delegitimized and that Trumpism was the problem that you can't win by turning off college-educated women and Hispanics? If that happens, then the Never Trump leaders, I think, really could make a difference going forward by helping steer the party and the movement in the right direction. But I'm not convinced that, that will be the lesson that we all learn, even if Donald Trump loses. It's entirely possible that the takeaway is, well, you just can't be quite as crazy as Donald Trump. Just do what Trump did, but just tone it down a little bit. So there's going to be a big fight over what happened on the right. And I do think never Trumpers are, are going to be uh, an important part of that. Patricia, question to you about the Senate. Uh, regardless whether or not Democrats take control of the Senate tonight, uh, and it may take longer than tonight to decide that, uh, it's going to be a very narrow um, majority, uh, either party. It could be 50-50. Um, how much room would that give Hillary Clinton to come up with an agenda for the first 100 days and indeed for the first two years? You know, I think it's going to make it, uh, in a way, easy for Hillary Clinton to come up with an agenda, but it's going to be very difficult to pass that agenda without Republican senators supporting at least a piece of that agenda. And so, in a way, it will give her, if she wins, the liberty to say, I would love and I plan to do comprehensive immigration reform. Now, it's very easy for her to say that. It's very difficult to get it done, so it would almost lower the stakes for her. Uh, and she'll have to narrow her vision uh, when it comes to really accomplishing something. And that's really been the tension for uh, President Obama since the since Democrats lost their 60 seat majority or the 59 seat majority. That's been the tension for him, what he wants to do versus what he can do. And I think that's why he's resorted to so many executive orders, why he's had a lot of plans just fall apart. I think Hillary Clinton, if she wins, will need to have a really different approach 
to not just Republicans, but to Democrats as well. I think there's a lot of room there for bridge building that maybe hasn't happened so far. No matter who wins the Senate, no matter what the majority is, there will always be that 60 vote threshold, and that will always require at least some number of Republicans uh, to support to support either president's agenda. So it'll have to be bipartisan, but it'll be fascinating to see how, especially Republican senators, uh, digest the results of this election and whether there is, uh, you know, kind of the the group of senators who take a harder line and say, well, now that this is where we are, I, I refuse to support any nominee uh, who Hillary Clinton nominates. I refuse, I won't even let a vote go forward. I mean, they could really just try and bring everything to a halt, um, or as a group of senators, they could decide that that's not the most prudent choice. And you've made the point that a very key ally for her is uh, Senator Charles Schumer from New York. Uh, They served as uh, senators from New York together. He's the presumed Democratic leader and uh, quite a deal cutter in the chamber. He is, you know, whereas I think we all think of Harry Reid as being this uh, almost a caricature of a fighter, a boxer, a scrapper, you know, that's that's the persona that he has really cultivated. Chuck Schumer, really, his passion is just sort of doing stuff, getting deals done. When he was head of the DSCC, the Democrats' campaign arm, he, he kind of combined to help them pick up 14 seats. A lot of these senators are very, very loyal to him because he was there with them from the very beginning of their careers, their Senate careers. So he has a lot of loyalty on his side, and he has just this predisposition to sort of get into the minutia of policy, um, go backwards and forwards, pick off a tiny piece and say, I can give this to you, Mr. Republican, I can give this to you, Mr. Democrat, let's all agree to do it. So I think he will be a key ally um, for either Trump or Clinton, and all, all three of them have known each other for a long, long time. So it won't be a fresh relationship. They're not going to be having to get to know each other over coffee in the Oval Office. So I think it, I've talked to just a lot of Hill veterans who think that Schumer could really be a big piece of solving the gridlock. If it's possible, you want somebody like Schumer to be head of the Democratic caucus who who has a fresh start and, and tends to really want to get things done. So I've, I'm personally interested to see how the leadership change affects what Congress is actually able to do. Well, at this point, uh, the only thing we can say is stay tuned and follow us all day and night on RollCall.com. I'm Adriel Bettelheim with Patricia Murphy in Atlanta, Matt Lewis in New York. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find all of our podcasts at RollCall.com forward slash podcast.